just flipped. There you go, 6.30. Let's get started. We get everybody in, close those doors. I hope you all sign up. And uh, thanks for being here tonight. Looks like we're down a little bit. That's not good. That's not good. Well, I tell you that because you're here. It's the ones, it's the ones who aren't here that I need to say it's not good. Where are you? We've been running up close to 200 people, and uh, that's pretty awesome. So I want to pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray for tonight you would open our minds to understand the word and the power of this book called Hebrews. So Father, tonight, um, teach us. Let us know who you are by revealing your word, which reveals your identity, your person. I pray this by the power of Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible teaches the Bible. The Bible teaches the Bible. And I want you to understand that. Tonight I'm going to show you some of that because a lot of people go at teaching the Bible with non-Bible, but the, the Bible will teach itself. It'll teach itself. That doesn't mean we, we don't come alongside of it with our personalities and some methods, but the Bible will teach itself. It will confirm itself. I'll show you tonight. Chapter 3, we're going to open up chapter, excuse me, chapter 4, but chapter 3 ended pretty heavy. If you were here last Wednesday night, it's heavy stuff. I mean, it's in your face stuff. It really is. And I got some bad news. Chapter 4 starts the same way. It starts with a warning. Chapter 4 begins with a warning. Now, if, if warnings offend you, I need to tell you something. I didn't write it. Okay, I'm just reading it. But it's a warning that I think we all take seriously. Here we go. Chapter 4, verse 1. God's promise. That's a covenant, by the way. God's promise of entering his rest still stands. To which I want to say hallelujah. Thank you. God's promise of entering his rest still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it. What's it? God's rest. I got good news and bad news. God's covenant promise is still within reach today, this moment, this second. God's covenant promise. Well, what is the promise? That there's a rest. There is an it is finished moment out there, and it's within your reach, and you can take hold of it personally. That's good news. You know what the bad news is? Some of you might fail to experience it. That's what he says. In fact, let me just make it more clear. Some will. I hope you're not in the room, but some are going to fail to experience the promise of God's rest. That's what we're talking about tonight. I want to focus on the good news. I don't want to just stay on the bad news. The good news, the gospel message of God's rest. Tonight, I want you to frame it in this way. There's some good news about rest. Now, when I say rest, most of us are going to think about, I'm tired and I need to rest. And that's part of it. There, there is, will be a physical aspect to the rest. But there's another part, maybe a bigger part. You're finished. You're done. I mean, the test is over. 
you, you think you're going to be tested in the, future, in the future world of God as God's children living under the inheritance of God? Right, right now you're facing tests, right? You're facing trials and persecutions, opposition. You, you know what? And, and that makes you tired. But there's a day coming when you can say, it is finished. The test is over. I'm not going to face another test tomorrow. You're not going to get to heaven. You're not going to get to this, this eternal kingdom, promised land of God in the presence of God, and then face daily testing. It'll be over. It's called rest. It's over. So I want to focus on something. Verse 2. For this good news, that God has prepared this rest, has been announced to us just as it was to them. Well, there's some good news. I'm going to hold it up. This good news about God has made a day when it'll be finished. A rest. It's been announced to us the same as it was to them. Now, I'll tell you who the us and the them is in a moment. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. Announced to us. Who's the Hebrew writer talking to? This good news, and I'm going to hold it up. I just read it to you. I've been reading it to you. There's good news that there is a rest promised by God to those who will believe. It's been announced to us. Who? The church age. We're in it. Jews, Gentiles, anybody, everybody. It's been announced to us. That us is Jews, Gentiles, in the church age. Just as it was announced to them. Who's the them? Well, you can pretty much take off the Gentiles. So who was the them? The Jews in the Old Testament. It was announced to them in the Old Testament. And now, if you study the book of Acts, it's been opened up to the Gentiles and the Jews in the New Testament. It was announced to us the same as it was to them. But it did them no good. Now we're back to the Jews in the Old Testament. Why did it do them no good? This is this good news that was announced to us and them is salvation. A place of rest in the promised land. Accessible by faith in Jesus Christ. That you and I can actually look in our future in a day, in a day... In which you can say, it's finished. That doesn't mean you're finished. You're just getting started. But the trials of life, the burdens of life, will be finished. But this good news of salvation, listen carefully to what I'm about to say. This good news of salvation, of God's rest, is only good news if you believe it. Now, I don't want to oversimplify, but I, I think that's just profound. It's only good news if you believe it. If you don't believe it, it's not good news at all. You have to receive it and believe it for it to be good news. If not, it's just news. Somebody else believes it, maybe you don't. The promised land was of no value to many of the Israelites. Why? Because they didn't go in. Was there a promise? Yeah. That's why they call it the promised land. But the promise was of no value 
to most of them why. This is big because they never went in. They never got in there. They didn't share in the faith of the ones who actually listened and believed and personally received the promise. Let me do something to illustrate. I think I used this illustration a few years ago, but, but it still works. If tonight I said that I have an envelope, and in the envelope is an all-expense-paid vacation to Hawaii for three weeks. Everything's paid for. All your meals, all your travel, all your lodging, it's all paid for. And, and it's yours. And, 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 I, and I'm saying it to everybody in the room. In fact, it is so incredible and so specific and so wonderful that your name is on the envelope. And all of the envelopes are up in the office on the table in the lobby. Just go there after church, pick up your envelope, and enjoy your time in the way. This is an illustration. <laughs> okay. Okay, some of y'all thinking, let's go on, honey, get up there. It's an illustration. The promise of the envelope and the award and the reward and the Hawaii has been announced to you. It's been announced. It's been prepared with your name on it sitting on the table. But are you going to Hawaii? Just because you heard about that envelope does not mean you're going to Hawaii. And just because you believe that I got an envelope for you doesn't mean you're going to Hawaii. You know what you got to do? You got to receive that gift. You're going to have to go pick up that envelope. Just, just because you heard about it. Listen, what does he say? This good news that God has prepared this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them. But it did them no good. What? what? You, you got the promised land. Your name's on it. Look, 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 your name's on it. But it did them no good. Why? Why? Same illustration. Because they didn't share in the faith of those who listened to God. You see, there was Joshua and Caleb, and you know what they said? God said, because God said it, it's mine. You know what? I got an envelope, promised land. Joshua, let's go. Yeah, but there's giants. Well, I don't care. He promised. He's bigger than giants, right? He promised. Well, you know what? We look like grasshoppers to them. I don't care. He promised. I'm going to the promised land. You know what? He picked up his envelope. He went into the promised land. It did the other ones no good. Why? They didn't believe. They didn't listen. Well, well, yeah, they heard, but they didn't listen. You and I have an envelope, spiritually speaking. We have an envelope with our name on it, sealed in the blood of Christ. Sealed in the blood of Christ. A promise, a covenant, a blood covenant that whoever believes in my name shall never perish. You, you, you know, you got. he's made a place for you in the promised land. But it will do you no good until you believe it. Because believing it is to receive it. Listen, listen, listen. This is where it gets big. This is where it gets big. Receiving it is not an intellectual event. It begins with an intellectual event. Yes, it does. 
But it doesn't end with an intellectual event. It begins with me believing that he really did make me a promise about the promised land and the rest in the promised land. And there's, there's one, my name's on it. But if you know for a fact today, if you know for a fact today that you're going to the promised land, it doesn't just affect your last day, does it? It affects your today. Because nobody can take that envelope away from you. Nobody. It's yours. So, so the church ought to be a profound group of people. You know what? We just walk around with this funny grin on our face. Because we know that the envelope's already been given. The names have already been written. It's yours. And by receiving it by faith, it's mine. And I'm just waiting for the day when the flight leaves. Right? When's the flight leaving? I just don't know the date of the flight. But I already got the ticket. It is of no value. I'm going to go back and read verse 2 again. This is good news. And I'm going to tell you it's bigger in Hawaii. God has prepared this rest. It has been announced to us, church people, just as it was to them, those people who died in the wilderness. It's been announced to us just as it was to them. But it did them no good. You know what? There be a whole lot of people living in church age. It'll do them no good either. Don't you look down your nose at them and say, what's the matter with you stupid people laying dead in the wilderness when you never took the package for your own self in this time either? It did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. Joshua and Caleb, 601,728 people didn't make it. Two did. Why? Because that 601,728 people didn't share the faith of Joshua and Caleb. Because Joshua and Caleb, what? They believed it. Why did they believe it? Why did they believe it? This is fundamental. Why did they believe it? Because God said so. Your parents ever look at you? Come on, come on. Y'all know the line. You've, done, you've used the line. You might have used it before you came in here. What? Why, why do I? Because I said so. Shut up and sit down. Because I said so. What? Because I said so. Because I have authority over you. Because I said so. God looks at Joshua. He looks at Caleb and says, because I've got a promise land. I'll go in front of you. I will fight for you. I will hand it to you. I will hand it to you. All you've got to do is believe me. And I'll give it to you. You know what? They both got it too. And, and it gets better. You know, this is just the warm up. You know what? It gets better than that. Let's go to verse 3. For only we who believe can enter his rest. As for the others, well, what? The people who don't get to enter his rest. As for the others, God said, In my anger, I took an oath. That they will never, and never is a long time to be anywhere, they will never enter my rest. God took an oath. So if you're thinking he's going to change his mind, he can't. He can't. You know why? Because he took an oath. And he's holy. He took an oath. They will never enter my rest. Even though this rest, here's where it gets deep. Even though this rest has been ready since he made the world. 
We know it is ready because of what? Why do we know it's ready? Because of the authority of the Scriptures. I'm going to tell you, the Scriptures prove the Scriptures. The Scriptures confirm the Scriptures. The Scriptures reveal and teach the Scriptures. Why? I'm reading it to you. We know that this rest is ready because of the place in the Scriptures where it mentions what? The seventh day. Well, there's authority. That's all you got because he said so. It mentions the seventh day. On the, and here's what it mentions about the seventh day. On the seventh day, God rested from all of his work. Now you might wonder, what's that got to do with me? I'm not God. Verse 5. But in another passage, but in the other passage, God said, they will never enter my place of rest. <coughs> God compares, listen carefully, God compares the seventh day of, sa of Sabbath rest to our place of rest. A time and a rest. God compares, not me, God compares the Sabbath day rest of creation to our, it is finished, rest in the promised land. Uh, listen, you got, I can't go on until you see that. God created the heavens and the earth in seven days. And he uses the seventh day, his rest, to try to describe our seventh day rest. Not, don't, don't think of an earthly calendar. It is finished at the end rest. Now, now here's where it gets really interesting. Today, right now today, many Jews believe the 6,000th year from Adam, and I told you a few weeks ago, if you open a Jewish calendar, this year is 5779. That means that in 221 years, it'll be year 6,000. Many Jews, and I'm not trying to say yes, I agree, or no, I don't agree. I'm just trying to give you some perspective. Many Jews believe that in 221 years, for example, when the calendar clicks over to 6,000, that will begin the Sabbath year, which is 1,000 years which will be, take you to 7,000, which will be the, the reign, the Jews believe it'll be the, the reign of the Messiah. Now let me say it again, because y'all got that look in your eye. This is based on the Scripture. It's found two places. I list the Scripture, Psalms 90 and 2 Peter 3, that a day unto the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. So if that is God's measurement standard for time, then, and we're in 6,000 years since God created the heavens and the earth, it's been to God six days, right? And the seventh day is coming. Now, I don't know how accurate they are in their numbering system of 5779. I don't know. Uh, which I don't know. How could I know? But the Jews are waiting for the Messianic age. We're waiting for the return of Christ. They're waiting for the Messianic age. L listen, they're waiting for the two... It's terrible if you... Who's going to make it another 221 years? Huh? 
If you're in physical flesh, you're going to make it another 221 years? See, we're waiting for the second coming of Christ. Interesting to me that they're thinking that when the, when the seven when the 6,000 years are over and we begin the 1,000 years leading up to 7,000, that the Messianic age will come upon the earth. They believe it's coming upon the earth. We, Christians, look at the book of Revelation and what's it say? It says we will reign with him for 1,000 years. We believe there's a 1,000-year Messianic time too, but it's not his first coming. It's his second coming. And Christians are going to reign with him on this present earth for 1,000 years. One of us is wrong. But it's interesting that both of us have a similar perspective based on what? The scriptures. The only difference is they think Jesus will be coming for the first time, or, or not Jesus, their Messiah will be coming for the first time. We think he's coming back. It'll be the second time. God didn't rest on the seventh day because he was tired. I'm pretty sure he doesn't get tired. Okay? Well, why did he rest? What does it mean? I'm finished. What's he offering you and I? You'll be finished. Right? The plan of God to give us a promised land, place of rest, was already in place even before Genesis. <laughs> I know this is hard to grasp. It, it was, it's not an afterthought. It was already in place even before Genesis. Mature believers, Paul says, will understand this mystery. So if you don't understand it, please don't raise your hand because it makes you look bad right about now. Mature believers will understand this mystery about God's rest. How do I say that? Well, let me read to you. 1 Corinthians, and by the way, this is a letter to a Gentile church in the church age. Yet when I am among you mature believers, Paul says to the church, I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world or to the rulers of this world who are soon forgive, forgotten. No, the wisdom we speak, Paul says, the wisdom that I convey is the mystery of God. His plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory when? Before the world began. It was previously what? Hidden. I can tell you a big part of that plan that was hidden. It was not revealed until the book of Acts in the time of Cornelius and the apostle Peter. Why? That this glorious rest of God's covenant is available to Gentiles as well as Jews. Now go to Titus. Paul again has another letter. This letter is from Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. What, 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 what do you think that truth looks like? I'm holding it up. To teach them the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. Verse 2, the truth, this truth, I, I'm going to hold it up while I read. This truth does something. It gives us confidence that we have eternal life. My, my confidence and my faith is not based on nothing. It's based on something. It's based on a promise of God. And I got a copy of it. See, I, I, to me, it's this simple. God made a promise. 
It's been recorded and protected over time. I have a copy of it. I read it. I believed it. I took this to be my letter of invitation to the promised land. And I tested it with the Holy Spirit. And I tested it with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit of God would reveal if this is true. Would you test it with the Holy Spirit? And what I mean by that, would you read the Bible, and I've recommended this to a lot of people over the years, would you read the Bible if you're a scoffer, if you're a doubter, if you're not sure that the Word of God's alive and true, would you read it and then ask God, God, if this is really yours, would you show me? Would you reveal it to me, Lord, right now? If this is really you talking, would you show me? Because I'm open to that right now. Be careful when you do that. I did it again. I have no idea where I am. Truth gives us confidence that we have eternal life. And that confidence in my eternal life is not something I will have on the last day by itself. It's something I have now. Right now, today. Today. I'm just, what, what, what am I waiting? I'm just waiting for the flight arrangements. Right? I already have confidence in the security of the travel, the trip, the destination, the glory. I'm waiting on the departure date. Hebrews 4, 6. Let's go on. So God's rest is there for people to enter. But those who first heard this good news failed to enter. Church people, you listening? Those who first heard the good news, what, about a promised land, about rest in the promised land, they failed to enter because, why, why, why did they fail? Because they disobeyed God. So God set another time for entering his rest, and that time is when? Say it out loud. Today. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. What? Today. God announced this through David much later in the words already quoted. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. I want to say something. Unbelief is fatal. It's fatal. You don't get rest with unbelief. You get rest by believing. And disobedience, listen, is the seed of of unbelief. Let me prove it to you. Joshua and Caleb were two of 12 people that went into the promised land. That's what all this is about. He's using their story to testify about our story. It's our chance. They had their chance, but they didn't take, they didn't seize it. And he's using their story to illustrate our story. So Joshua and Caleb were two of 12 people that went into the promised land. They got to see firsthand what God's promise was going to look like. God had said, it's yours. He didn't say, well, maybe I'll go with you. No, he says, it's yours. It's yours. I promise it's yours. Then why didn't 10 of them get it? We've got we to come to grips with this. Why didn't 10 of them get it? What is faith? What is believing? What is it? Is, is faith an intellectual acknowledgement in the existence of God? You think those 10 guys didn't believe in God? Those 10 guys believed in God. Those 12 guys believed in God, right? Right, right? They believed in God. They didn't go in. 
So what is faith? Church, you better get it. You better figure this out. What, what is faith? It isn't just an intellectual acknowledgement in the existence of God. It's then allowing... Then I have to listen to what he says to do. I have to listen. And, and in Israel's case, what did he tell them to do? Cross the Jordan River and take possession of that which is yours. Go. Last week I gave you the illustration. He, said, he told them that you're going to live in houses you didn't build. You think he didn't know that that would actually be the ultimate illustration for you and I today? You're going to live in a house you didn't build. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again. He's going to make a house for you. You're going to drink water out of wells that you didn't dig. You know, there's going to be streams of living water flowing. Verse 7. God set another time for entering his rest. That time is today. God announced this through David much later in the words already quoted today when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden today when you hear his voice. What? Was God talking back then? He was talking, but their hearts, their hearts were so hard, and I'm going to get into the why. Don't harden your heart. Unbelief is fatal. And disobedience is the seed of unbelief. The promise of eternal life in a promised land is of no value to unbelievers. Why? This is big. Why? Because they will never have the faith to take hold of this prize. The 12 guys all had the same exact envelope, using the illustration, right? They all had the same envelope. But only two of them took the envelope and crossed the Jordan River. Why? The generation, here, here, I'm going to try to explain the why. The generation that left Egypt, in fact, everybody in that group with Joshua, unless they were babies born quickly after they departed, everybody knew about Egypt, right? They had spent 400 years in Egypt. You know what that means? Their daddy was from Egypt, and their granddaddy was from G Egypt, and their great-granddaddy was from Egypt. All they knew was Egypt, right? 400 years, they're in Egypt. This generation that left Egypt had tasted Egypt, and what did they want? What did they want? What did they want from Moses in the wilderness? What did they want from Moses? I want Egypt. But there's a promised land. It flows with milk and honey. I want Egypt. I want Egypt. Egypt is a symbol of sin. Egypt is a symbol. Listen carefully, church. We better get this. Egypt is a symbol of the love of this world. It's called idolatry. Because we're not supposed to be in love with this world. You know why? Because from God's perspective, loving this world is loving Egypt. And he sent his son to get you out of Egypt. And you know what many people, even in the church, well, they want Egypt. And he said, I got something way better than Egypt. And then you got an envelope and your name's on it. But you've got to, you've got to take possession of your prize. And you do it by faith. Anything else is idolatry. Idolatry hardens the heart of man. <coughs> <coughs> because that person's heart 
and devotion is divided between God and the world. It's like having two masters. You can't, in fact, when your heart, when your heart gets hardened, you can't see anymore. And you can't hear anymore. And you can't reason anymore. And it makes perfect sense to want to go to Egypt. When God's telling you, you'll die in Egypt. But you still want Egypt. Why? Because your hard heart becomes hard. Listen, and I'm going to tell you what that means in the modern church. When God's Holy Spirit reveals the truth to you about your envelope in the promised land, that's your moment. That's your moment. And if you turn away from that moment, if you turn away from that moment, if you say, I don't have an envelope to the promised land, you turn away. Your heart becomes hardened. Now, he might come back and give you another shot at that envelope. And some of us had a whole lot of shots at that envelope. Thank you for mercy and grace. He might come back and he might... And if you turn it down the second time, you know what? Your heart will get a little harder. And then he comes and your heart will get a little harder. And there's a point. Listen, I don't know where that's at. I don't know. And because I don't know, I'm going to keep throwing envelopes at you. Because I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where it's at. So all I can do is just tell you about it. But there comes a point. The Bible says clear. There comes a point. There comes a point where your heart is so hard you can't turn. Does that mean God has withdrawn the offer? Uh-uh, the envelope's already written. You'll never open it. You know why? Because your heart has become so hardened by rejection, by rejection, by rejection, by rejection. You, don't, you can't see it anymore. It's a depraved mind. Romans chapter 1 talks about this depraved. The old King James used to call it a reprobate mind. You can't see anymore. You're blind to it. Let me, let, me, let me show you what it looks like in modern world. 1 John 2.15. I always wonder when I say, read this to the church, I always want to say to the church, tell me what you're going to do with these verses. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do with them. You tell me what you're going to do with these verses. Do not love this world. Because from God's perspective, it's Egypt. Do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. What are you going to do with that? Well, it's just an illustration. Right? For the world, this is Egypt, offers only a craving for physical pleasure. American culture, is this it? The world offers a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, a pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father. These cravings, this lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the heart, this, this, this oh, me, 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 more, 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 this is not from God. He's not doing this. He, he's trying to get you out of Egypt. These are not from the Father. They are from this world. Anybody want to guess who's in charge of this world right now? Don't say Donald Trump. <laughs> who's in charge of this world right now? His name's Satan. And this world is fading away. 
Egypt is not going to last much longer. And this world is fading away. In fact, if you believed Egypt wasn't going to last much longer, you'd get out of Egypt. This world is fading away, along with everything that people crave. It's fading away. But anyone who does what pleases God, what, 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 what? You're leaving Egypt. You're going to live forever. There it is. There it is. But you've got to get out of Egypt. You stay in Egypt, you're going to get what Egypt gets. It's going to fade away. It's going to die. You've got to get out of Egypt. Do you remember last week how we compared Joshua and the promised land to Jesus? How he was kind of this preview, the shadow. Now, this comparison comes up again in verse 8. Now, if Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest. Now, now I'm going to tell you, I thought about this all afternoon. If Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, what if 601,730 people had actually gone over? Huh? 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 What would have happened? What would have happened? Now, you, you think God doesn't know that they weren't going to do it? But, but it's real. If Joshua had, had succeeded had given them this rest. What? 601,730 of them. All of them go. Everybody goes. Goes singing songs across the Jordan River. Right? If Joshua had succeeded in giving them this rest, God would not have spoken about another day. There's a side of me who wants to say, you better be glad they didn't all go over. God would not have spoken about another day of rest still to come. You and I are in that day. So there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors, just as God did after creating the world, resting from your labors. So let us do our best. Let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God, listen, you don't have to guess. Let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God, as the people of Israel deal, did, you're not getting in. You're not going to make it. What is the another day rest of God? A special Day, rest of God. What is it? Today when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. That's it. Today when you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. And they drop dead in the wilderness. They will never enter my rest. Why? Because they harden their hearts. How many times between Egypt and Jordan River did he tell them, I got this? How many times? How many times did he say, I'll go in front of you, I'll be behind you. I will defeat them. Just stay with me. Two people went across. Whew. Is that sobering? That sobers me. Those who know the truth know what's at stake here. Life and death at stake, right? Those who know the truth will do their best to enter this rest. Let me make something really clear. This is not salvation by works. This is the work of salvation. Paul describes it like this, 1 Corinthians 9.24. Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs? I want all of us, I read this tonight, I want you to put yourself in the scene. You and I have left Egypt. 
We're all from Egypt. Don't none of you look around and think, well, I'm not from Egypt. Yeah, you are. You're just in denial. We're all denial. That was pretty good. Denial. <laughs> I wish I'd thought of that earlier. We're, we're all from Egypt. And, and, and we, we're heading across a wilderness. And in front of us is promised land. Okay? Don't you realize that in a race, everyone runs. But only one person gets the prize. So run to win. All athletes are, dis, are, are, all athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. But we do it for an eternal prize. Now, I want you to visualize. We're all from Egypt. In front of us is the promised land. I'll ask you, are you running a race to win? Because I'm going to tell you, all the trophies you get in Egypt are going to mean nothing. All the awards you get in Egypt are going to mean nothing. I think it was, when I was looking at this backstage a few minutes ago, I had this flashback moment. Larry Barnett's in here. He'll appreciate this. When I was in high school, uh, we won the district championship in football. And I'm going to tell you, well, that's about the biggest thing in my life. At that time, you know, playing football, I had a winning team, and we was all over the news, and Anderson County, this. And we got this big old trophy. Man, is that big. It's probably about that big. But in my mind, it's that big. <laughs> and we looked good in those A jackets, and they put that thing in the trophy case, and you know what? We, we looking hot. This, this is good stuff. Well, fast forward a bunch of years, and I went to an Anderson County basketball game. Years later. And I had some free time out there in the lobby, and I went up that trophy case, and I'm, you know what I'm thinking? My trophy going to be right up in that front thing, yeah? That thing was laying on its side in the back. <laughs> Dust on it about that deep. Somebody said they threw it away. I don't know if it did or not. I don't know. I'm going to tell you what. That's what Egypt did. You know, at the time, it looks like a treasure. And you know what? I don't know how many of those bearcat laps I ran to get to, get to that thing. And what we poured out to get that trophy. And listen, I'm not making light of all that. That was fun. As long as I know that I'm not trading that for what's in front of me. It's a bad trade. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away. Those trophies that are going to be thrown in the dump. But we do. We run this race to win. Why? Because we know what it's... We're, I'm running for eternal life. Verse 26. So I run with purpose in every step. I, I'm not shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I have a fear. Paul, probably one of the most holy men on earth, Paul says, I have a fear that after preaching this good news about God's rest in a promised land to others, I might be disqualified myself. Run to win. Run for your life. There will be losers. I'm going to tell you, there will be losers. I don't think any of them, when they went up to the Jordan River, 601,730, I wonder if any of them thought there'd be losers. But there will be losers. There's not going to be any participation trophies. 
You know, we're raising an entire generation of people that think that everybody gets a participation trophy. That's not how this thing's going to work. There's going to be winners and there's going to be losers. Some are going to live and some are going to die. The last sentence in verse 27 always moves me. I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. You think that doesn't hit me in the heart? It hits me in the heart. Well, this, this Word of God holds us accountable. It makes us run this race with our eyes set on the prize. These next two verses are central and powerful to me because they describe the night that God changed my life. It's very personal. August 1988. I heard, I heard, I don't care whether you believe me or not, it's irrelevant. I heard God's voice in my heart, not audibly from the external. In my heart, he says, either you believe it all or you believe none of it. And I believe it was a specific reference to this book I'm holding. Terry, either you believe all of this or you believe none of this. You're not going to be able to carve out the parts you like and put the rest away. It's all or it's nothing. I heard that in August of 1988. And that night, I stepped out. I walked down the aisleway. I stood in front of that church. I had tears running down. I don't know. Why did it break me? Why am I crying? Why is there snot coming out of my nose and this looks so ugly? Why? Because God broke my spirit. And I said, I believe it all. And listen, I decided to believe it all. And this verse, it's so powerful to me. Next verse in Hebrews chapter 4. Next verse. For the word of God is alive and powerful. You don't have to tell me all of it. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It, what, what it? I'm going to hold it up. It exposes our innermost thoughts. It exposes our desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before His eyes. And He is the one to whom we are accountable. I believe the Word of God is Genesis to Revelation. First page to last page. I believe the Word of God is Jesus. Did you hear me? I believe the Word of God is a person. The Word became flesh. I believe the Word of God is working in concert with, ever, with the ever-present Holy Spirit dwelling inside of me, even right now, revealing the power of the book of Hebrews. Let's go to 2 Timothy. Because Paul says this, all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. I believe the Word of God is the bread of life, and the bread of life is the Word of God, and the bread of life is Jesus. Whoever eats this bread will not be hungry for the world's bread anymore. Whoever begins to feed upon this bread will not want to go back and eat Egypt's bread. I believe the bread of life is also our high priest. Listen carefully, because this is about to change gears. He is also our high priest, standing between us and God the Father. So right now, between me and the Father is a priest. His name is Jesus. 
And by faith, he has positioned himself between me and God. Next verse, verse 14. So then, we have a great high priest who has entered heaven. Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest is ours This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly, boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Holding firmly, look at what he said, holding firmly, no drifting from the word of God. Run to win. Discipline yourself. Church, you need spiritual disciplines in your life. You need to be a student of the Word of God. You need to be a person who spends much time on your knees in prayer. You need to be a person who knows that you must have a servant's heart. That we're here to love God and to love others. And if in my life I'm not doing those two things above everything else, something's wrong. Something's wrong with me. The Word of God doesn't just say it so that I feel guilt. It says it so I'll make adjustments to my behavior and I'll install spiritual disciplines in my life so that I don't start leaning back toward Egypt. Come boldly to the throne of God. Don't be afraid. Why? Because He goes with you. When I go to the Father, guess what? Jesus says, I'm going with you. I'll stand next to you. That's what a high priest does. Especially when we need him most. Come boldly. Stand there with your high priest. In fact, sometimes it's a good idea when you're praying, just stick your hand out. I got this thing I do sometimes. I hope nobody sees me because they think I'm crazy. But, but I got this thing I do sometimes when I'm praying and I'm walking. I'll stick my hand out. Just like he's holding me. Because if I'm going to talk to God, he's got to go with me. Because God's not going to listen to me unless I'm with Him and He's with me. It's a spiritual discipline. We're going to jump to chapter 5. And I want to... We're going to get into one of the, the... the hardest parts, perhaps, of the book of Hebrews to grasp. A New Testament revelation of an Old Testament scene. Jesus has got to fulfill the Old Testament role in Judaism, the high priest. Verse 1, chapter 5. Every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. He presents their gifts to God and offers sacrifices for the people, for their sins. And he, the high priest, is able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people. I say, thank you, Lord. He is able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. Now, now it's reference to the Jewish high priesthood. That is why we must offer sacrifices, or he, the Jewish high priest, must offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as the sins of the people. Every high priest, listen carefully, here's the qualifications, is a man. The Jewish high priest was a man. He was a chosen man. 
He was not self-appointed. You can't say, I'm running for high priest. Vote for me. Put out a yard sign. Doesn't work. This high priest presents gifts and sacrifices to God. Sacrifices to atone for sin. To pay for sin. You know how you do that? Blood for blood. Life for life. Blood for blood. That's what they're offering. Why do you think they had to kill an animal? Blood for blood. Life for life. The original role of the high priest was a man like other men. So he could understand the failings of man. He'd be sympathetic to those under him. Aaron, the brother of Moses, had to offer sacrifices for himself before he could offer sacrifices for anybody else. Verse 4. And no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honor. He must be called by God for this work, just as Aaron was called by God. This is why Christ did not honor himself by assuming he could become high priest. No, he was chosen by God, who said to him, You are my son, today I have become your father. The father appointed Jesus as our high priest. When? When? This just told you. When God the Father looked at Jesus the Son, before Genesis, this is not a Bethlehem event. And what did he say? Today you have become my son. That's when he was planning him to become the high priest. Today you have become, today I have become your father. The Father appointed Jesus as our high priest. He's going to assume the Jewish role that Aaron and his children have been doing since the time of Moses. I admit that this scene is above my human comprehension. I trust it by faith. The religious leaders of Israel, what's above my human comprehension? How all of that was done before Genesis. Because the Bible's clear. We covered this about two weeks ago. That Jesus did not become the Son of God in just in Bethlehem. He was announced to be the Son of God before the foundation of the earth. Before He was born of the flesh. He was, he was God's only begotten even before. And by the time He became the only begotten, He was already destined to be the high priest. Whew. It's so big. It's so eternal, this plan of God. Now, if we're struggling with it today, how much do you think they were struggling with it then? And I'm talking about the Jews who had a high priest. The religious leaders of Israel struggled with this same issue when Jesus revealed it to them. This is an amazing story. Jesus wouldn't glorify himself. The Father was going to glorify him. Let me go to the Gospel of John. I want to read this, chapter 8. And though I have no wish, Jesus says, and though I have no wish to glorify myself, God is going to glorify me. What was the thing about a high priest? You can't be self-appointed. You can't glorify or raise yourself up, right? He says, I have no wish to glorify myself. God is going to glorify me. This is the true, he is the true judge. I tell you the truth. And here he comes. Here he comes. He's going to say something to the Jews. I tell you the truth. Anyone who obeys my teachings will never die. The people said, now we know you are possessed by a demon. Even Abraham and the prophets died. 
But you say, anyone who obeys my teachings will never die? Are you greater than our father Abraham? You know they have no idea what they're asking him, do they? Are you greater than Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are, Jesus? And Jesus answered, if I want glory for myself, it doesn't count. But it is my Father who will glorify me. You say, He is our God. But you don't even know Him. I know Him. And if I said otherwise, I would be a great liar as you are. That was pretty insensitive, wasn't it? But I know Him. And I obey Him. And here it comes. Here it comes. This is when they're going to absolutely flip out. He looks at these Jews and says, your father Abraham. You know how, you know what, let me tell you what that, that's 2,000 years before Christ. That's how far Abraham is from this date. He says, your father Abraham, 2,000 years ago, rejoiced as he looked forward to my coming. 2,000 years ago, Abraham was looking forward to me arriving here. He saw it, and he was glad. The people said, you aren't even 50 years old, Jesus. How can you say you've seen Abraham? Here's his answer. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. And what did they do? They bowed down and worshipped him? No, they they grabbed rocks and started to stone him. Why? They could not... Is he going to glorify himself? He said, no, I'm not going to glorify myself. My father's going to glorify me. I didn't appoint myself to be high priest. God appointed me before the foundation of the earth to be the high priest. And what's their answer? We'll worship you? We'll follow you? We believe you? No. We'll stone you. God honored and glorified Jesus and appointed him as our high priest. And I'm going to close tonight with a mystery. Tonight's the teaser. Before I read it, you need to understand that all Jewish high priests were required to be from one family. They had to come from the family of Levi, one of the twelve sons of Jacob. Specifically, they had to come from the family, not just in Levi, not just in the Levites, but specifically, Moses and Aaron were from the Levites, but it had to be from Aaron's family, Aaron's sons. But Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi. But God has appointed him to be the high priest. But he's from the tribe of Judah. What's with this? It's a teaser. It's a teaser. It'll get you back next week. He's not from the tribe of Levi. He's not a Levite. And yet God's going to appoint him to be a high priest. But he's from the tribe of Judah. Next verse, verse 6. And in another passage, God said to him, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. While Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who would rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. Even though Jesus was God's son, listen, listen, listen. Even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience. How? How did he learn how to obey? Even though he's God's son, you might say, well, he learned obedience just because he's God's son. Uh Uh-uh. He learned obedience by suffering. I need to put this in here. I know I'm running out of time. Parents, parents, listen to that verse. Some parents never let their kids experience any failure in their entire life. 
And he never, he, Jesus, even though he was God's son, learned obedience through suffering. How, how did I learn obedience? Suffering. <laughs> suffering. You know what? It works. And if you're a parent in the room and your kids never suffered in their whole life and you wonder why they don't know what it is to obey, you did it. You're part of it. Even though he was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, in this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest and he became the source of eternal salvation for all who will obey him. And God designated him, Jesus Christ, to be a high priest. Here it comes. He's not from the tribe of, of, of Levi. In the order of Melchizedek? Jesus filled every high priest role, except he was not from the family of Aaron. He's not a Levite. It also says he learned obedience. I've already covered that. So who was Melchizedek? He was a king of Salem, which we believe to be a reference to what? Jerusalem. We believe he was the king, the king in Jerusalem in the time of Abraham. 2,000 years before Christ, right? So let's go back and look. I'll give you the teaser. Next week we'll dive into it. After Abram, Abraham returned from his victory over, yeah, that guy with the long name, and all of his allies, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him in the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the priest of God Most High. Are anybody seeing something? He's a king of Salem, the king of Jerusalem, and he is the priest of God Most High, 2,000 years before Christ, but he's in the time of Abraham. Melchizedek, uh, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem, the priest of God Most High, brought Abraham some bread and some wine. So this king, this priest, this king and priest, anybody read my email this week? This king and priest is going to bring Abraham a blessing after the battle. Verse 19, and Melchizedek blessed Abraham with the blessing. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abraham did something. He just got the blessing, right? Melchizedek shows up, gives Abraham the blessing. He gives him bread, he gives him wine, and then he gives him this God blessing, right? And then what's Abraham going to do? Then Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered in the battle, all the, all the spoils of the battle. He gave him 10%. Why is he giving him 10%? So here we go. Who is Melchizedek? A, option A. Is he the pre-incarnate Christ? Is he... Is he before Jesus is, this 2,000 years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Is he Jesus before Bethlehem? He's the Son of God, the only begotten, but he's, is that him? I don't know. Is he the, is he the Son before the Son becomes flesh? I don't know. Or is he simply a God-appointed high priest in Jerusalem in the time of Abraham? I don't know. Why the mystery around him? Mainly what I'm about to read. 
Verse 2, Hebrews chapter 7. Then Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle, and he gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice, and king of Salem means king of peace. There is no record of his father. There's no record of Melchizedek's father. There's no record of Melchizedek's mother. There's no record of anybody in Melchizedek's family. No beginning, no record of the beginning of his life, and no record of the end of his life. He remains forever. Melchizedek remains forever a priest, resembling the Son of God. Ooh, is that a teaser or what? Next week, we'll talk about Melchizedek. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this high priest that has joined this assembly tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.